What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. As a reader, writer, and someone who works with words every day in my job as a librarian, I find the intricacies of language fascinating. Words are amazing things that can convey so much in one small little package. One word I've been pondering lately is the word literacy. This word seems to be a very common one. I use it all the time as an educator, and even non-educators seem to have a sense of what this word means as they connect it to other forms of the word like literate or literature. Most people grasp a basic understanding of what it means to be literate, so they have some basic understanding of what literacy is. While on the outset, this word may seem to be pretty straightforward and comprehensible, the truth is the idea of literacy, especially in the 21st century, has taken on new and deeper meaning. In the past, literacy has been connected to just the skills related to reading and writing, but in reality, literacy is not just about those two things. In the 21st century, we are required to retrieve and assess knowledge in a lot of different formats and through a lot of different mediums. So today, the kinds of knowledge we gain through technological means is just as important as the kind of knowledge we might get through more traditional ways like print. So when we open our show to say that we're talking about reading, writing, thinking, seeing, speaking, and listening, we are really encompassing the whole gambit of literacy. I hope that as you engage with our show, that you will be able to expand your definition of what literacy and being literate is. And as you do so, you'll be better able to support the children in your lives in their own literacy development. And those are a few thoughts defining literacy from Rachel's world. This is Worlds Awaiting. What if literacy is more than what meets the eye? Experts today have greatly expanded the term. Coming up, Rachel talks to educator Jennifer Wimmer, who will give us some great tips on how to help our children engage the world. Wimmer is a faculty member in the Department of Teacher Education at Brigham Young University. She teaches courses in the elementary education program focused on literacy development methods. Here's Rachel and Jennifer. Talk to us a little bit about what we can do as parents or guardians or just aunts and uncles, adults in children's lives, grandparents. What can we do as adults to help our children engage with literacy? Literacy is experience. Yeah. I love this idea, and I, I think it happens and we just haven't named it. And so as we build consciousness of the world, as we do um, silly things, I driving my niece home from the hospital with her three-day-old son, I mean, the things that were she was saying, well, this is our main street and that's our favorite restaurant. At three days old, he wasn't going to talk back. Yeah. I mean, he's not, oh, that sounds delicious. I mean, <laughs> we, we start engaging children in this idea of there's a world out there and yeah. we talk about it and we make sense of it and we question it and we push back on it. And so even, I mean, just the conversations we have and acknowledging that children are making sense of it. And, and I think... Those who are around young children, the question, why, 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 mm -hmm. why? I mean, it drives us nuts. And, and we think, oh, just be quiet and go watch a movie or do yeah. something. To, <laughs> yeah. To, yeah. <laughs> they're trying to make sense of the world. They yeah. want to know. And so I think they're curious beings. And if we feed that curiosity and we nurture that curiosity, they're going to become literate people. 
And, and, and again, if, if we can take down that divide of the literacy that happens at school and the literacy yeah. that happens at home, if that can go away, then we can start to realize the idea that, that children are literate. They're just literate in different ways. And, and that we don't ever want to, again, that idea of we don't ever want to close doors. And so academic literacies are crucial. That is going to take you into a career. That's going to take you into college and those kinds of opportunities. But I also think that that if we only define it that way, I mean, it, using my dad as an example, he will, if I, if I say to him, are you literate? Do you like to read? Yeah. He'll say no, because he doesn't read novels. But he reads newspapers, you know, three newspapers a day. But it, we don't count that. And so, again, it's this idea of what do we count and what do we not count. Yeah. Um, as a teacher, when the students had free time to read, I told them they could bring in whatever. And, and so I had kids who brought in gaming manuals kids who brought in just the sports section and and just and read numbers and I had kids who were reading poetry I had children who I mean to me it just did not it didn't matter because I wanted them interacting with text I wanted them making meaning I wanted them to be able to talk about it and share what they were learning so the text did not matter to me but it's the engagement with the world that that matters to me well, I think one of the biggest barriers to all of that is kind of our fear as parents, because children may have an interest that we don't understand. Yes. So like, you know, if I'm not a big sports fan, but my son is, and I don't understand this, you know, football sports statistics, I can barely understand what happens in a football game, let alone all of that. Or even these questions of why, 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 our fear is, what if I don't know the answer? You know, what, what if I can't answer that? So how do we overcome that fear, do you think, to, to this is so gr- engage I mean, with I mean, that? I'm talking to teacher-student role, but I think it could be a, a parent-child role yeah. as well. Um, I love, um, it comes from the philosopher Paulo Freire. <laughs> and, and so he talks about one of the things that we do is we have a banking model of education, but it could be a banking model of parenting yeah. or a banking model yeah. of just yeah. society where we feel like there is someone who is most knowledgeable and then there is somebody mm. who is not. And our yeah. job is to deposit or to yeah, deposit, 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 and then we make a withdrawal. And so you can see that in, in the classrooms all the time. Teachers, they teach, they teach, they teach, they give a test. Yeah. But I think we do that with children. We, we want to be the ones who control the information. Mm. We want to be the ones who help you learn. It can, it yeah. can be a power issue very much. But if we, can, if we can tilt that on the side and say that we can be the parent and the child, we can be the teacher and we can be the learner, and, and let ourselves be uncomfortable, I think that's great as adults to remember what it's like to, to not mm-hmm. know and, yeah. and, and, and to let your child be the smart one and the leader. I just think that's so powerful for them. Again, as a first grade, a former first grade teacher, parents would come in and say, "Well, I want my child to be challenged. They need to be reading harder books. They need to be reading bigger books. They need to be reading longer books." And so, then only to the parents I knew really well, I would challenge them and say, "So, do you read a biochemistry textbook to challenge yourself? (laughs) Do you go to the hardest book in the library? You say to the librarian, where's the hardest book I can read?' No, I like to read a picture book. Right? Why? Why? Why do we always make children think that?" the literacy has to be hard or something that's always just beyond our grasp. Why, why can't we just say, you're already there. You're, you know, and I, I want to show you, I want to open new worlds to you or to be able to say, I don't know. I love that. 
I don't know, but let's find let's out. Let's find I, out. I think I think taking on that role of learner, I think it's something we're afraid of because we, again, you see, we see that power mm-hmm. differential, and we want to be at the power place that puts us at the top. But we don't have to be. We can be the learner too. And you know, all those times we say, oh, you know, when this child said this thing, it just made me understand it more, and how much they have to offer us too. I think right. sometimes we forget that this is a reciprocal kind of relationship yes. and not a give or take relationship. But it, it's something we can both engage in at a very fundamental level. And I think not being afraid, and I, I, I think spending time on the internet, spending time with iPads, spending time with, with these varieties of technologies only opens up our possibilities and only, only opens up the conversations that we can have. Um, kids are very funny. I think, I mean, for parents who are, who, who have had children long enough, you think MySpace was kind of the first big thing yeah. and everyone was into that. As soon as adults come, it's gone. Then there's some, <laughs> yeah. you know, twelve year old inventing yeah. something else in the in the basement. So then Facebook came. Yeah. Now we're seeing parents as soon as adults start to come, it's not cool. You know, so Instagram is a thing. And yeah. now there's you know, I yeah. mean it's just it's so interesting to see the continuum of things and how things change. But I think as adults, instead of saying, Oh, that's terrible, that's a time waster to be able to say what are the literacies that they're engaging in. Yeah. So you think about is what you put on a Facebook page. You have to decide about what images you want to put, what kind of text you want to put. Now hashtags. And so not being afraid of being able to think about what my children they're being they're literate. It's not wasting time. They're they're engaging with literacies and and celebrating those and being excited about those and and not saying, oh, I don't do it, so it's not good. Well, and engaging at a, a variety of levels, too, because for me, there's a lot of emotion that goes on, especially some of those things. Like, I communicate mostly in memes with one of my nephews. He will send me a meme, and I'll send one back to him. I love it. And there's this, there's this very cute little language that's going right. on. And so for us, that's, you know, an emotional connection that we've made in a very fundamental way and you know his his sending him a me a meme is just like oh hey i love you as much as if he said i love you right so that really shows that kind of connection and i think people communicate in a wide range of ways and we if we allow that we can see the richness of communication that goes on in the world so if we think about how do we interact with text and the rights of text we interact with i always ask parents you know when you finish a movie or you finish a book or whatever it may be that you have watched, do you go empty out a shoebox and create a diorama as yeah. quickly as you can? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we don't do that, yeah. but we make kids yeah. do silly things like that or, yeah. or go get a hanger and let's make a, you know, and let's put the characters and the setting and the plot yeah. and what's the problem and solution. But we want to talk. And so I think, again, children are just just little human beings. They they want to talk and they want to share and they want to af- ask questions. And and I think, again, when we say, well, that's a waste of time, then it's being disrespectful because now we're saying what you value isn't good enough. That's a powerful message and, and also yeah. and a very harmful message instead of being able to say, well, you teach me and I'll yeah. teach you and let's learn yeah. from one another. Well, and I think that kind of corollary message is if I don't value the stuff that you value, then I don't value you. Right. And I think that message comes across. I've, I've had that interaction with teachers where my literacies or my needs were not corollary to theirs and they didn't value it. And so I didn't see the teacher valuing me. And so I think that's that's tricky because we read it not just as you're not valuing that right. thing, that's okay, but we take it very personally and say, you don't value me as an individual. I don't know how you separate literacy from the individual. So literacy is who we are. Again, it's a respect issue. 
I mean, the phrase that comes to mind is tell me more about that and, and find out. I mean, I, I think children are what Gunther Kress calls sign makers. And so yeah. it's not necessarily the sign of what they've created mm-hmm. that's important, but it's the, the making process yeah. that they have gone through. When we will ask them, tell, what does that say? Why, what does that picture mean? Tell me yeah. more about what you're thinking. That's when we value the child. Again, they, they learn that their thinking is important yeah. and is beneficial. That's how we promote literacy yeah. is by saying, do more. What, what yeah. don't we know? And how yeah. do we find out? And, and then, and again, not too far on the consumption side, but, but on the production side. Yeah. How, do we, yeah. how are we creators? How do we give back? And I think, yeah. I think looking at new literacies... Um, and and technology, we think about perhaps you know Google being Web 1.0, and Facebook, Instagram, Wikipedia being Web 2.0, yeah. where you actually get to engage in the creation. You yeah. get to put the information out there. Yeah. You get to not just consume it, but to produce it. And I think that that's one of the things that kids are so good at. They're so good at producing. And I think we limit ourselves as adults sometimes in that production end of things. But but kids don't. No. <laughs> So we nurture that and we celebrate yeah. that and 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 we keep encouraging it. Because that that is where we want them to be. If, if they're going to be productive members of society, if they're going to go through school and get through college, that's what they need to do is produce and yes. engage with the world around them. So I always tell parents and teachers, ask a question and then just be quiet. Perfect advice to end on. <laughs> we, we will end on that lovely piece of advice. Thank you so much, Jenny, Thank for your you. time today. That was our host, Rachel Wadham, speaking with Jennifer Wimmer. Next, Rachel talks with an award-winning author about his personal satisfaction in writing books that cover a broad range of subjects. Matthew J. Kirby is author of middle-grade novels, including The Clockwork Three, Icefall, The Quantum League series, and The Arctic Code series. Kirby also shares some of the responses he's received from his readers. When he's not writing books, Matt is also a school psychologist. Here's Rachel and Matt. We're in studio today visiting with Matt Kirby. Welcome, Matt. Thank you very much. You know, I heard a wonderful story once about a young man who was deeply impacted by one of your books. And he came to you and said, Matt, you're my hero. You are the one that has kind of changed my life as as a reader, and I know that that probably happens quite frequently with your books and your readers. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the reactions that you've gotten from readers of your books? I've had really moving and profound reactions. Uh, I remember when I was at the National Book Festival, I was speaking in D.C., and a woman stepped up to the microphone to ask a question at the end of my you know, my keynote at the end of my talk. And she said, you know, do you mind if I take a moment to tell a story? And, you know, when you're in that kind of environment, you never know what's going to come. But I was like, uh, yeah, sure. And she proceeded to, to tell about how she had always wanted to be a writer. And she hadn't ever, like, pursued it. She had been scared to pursue it. And her father had cancer, and while he was going through his treatment, while he was in the hospital, she read Icefall. And she made a promise to him that she was going to pursue that dream, that passion. And he passed away. And she buried him with a copy of Icefall. Wow. And I, 
I was overwhelmed. You know, I'm up on stage. I, what I wanted to do was just hop off the stage and run down and give her a hug. Fortunately, later on in my book tour, I was at the Southern Festival of Books where she actually lives. She had gone up to D.C. for the National Book Festival. But then I was in Nashville and she came to my panel again and I recognized her immediately and I was able to give her a hug and we exchanged contact information and we've we've emailed some since then. But that kind of experience, it's very moving and very very touching, and I'm so grateful for those experiences, but I don't take any credit for them. As as you look at that, especially for your younger readers, what kinds of things do you hope that your younger readers are are taking from that? Granted that they may not take what you what you think they should, but what would you hope a young reader coming to your book might might find in what you have to offer? Well, books for me growing up were a source of um, enjoyment and entertainment, of course. So there's, on, on some level, I just want to give the reader a good time. Books were also, for me, a source of solace and comfort. We moved around a lot. My father was in the military. and But we our library went with us everywhere we went. And they were even on the shelves, like in the same order. Like I know, always knew where I could go to find a particular book and a particular character. So... To some degree, I hope maybe my books are able to provide what, for other kids, what books provided to me. But in terms of lessons or morals or anything like that, I don't expect any of that, and I don't hope for any of that. If I hope for anything along those lines is that my stories will help the kids to ask questions and then find their own answers. I'm not there to give them answers. But in my books, I'm asking questions that I wonder about. In Icefall, I was wondering, I was on almost every page, there is this question, why do the people that say they love us hurt us? And there's no easy answer for that question. I still don't have the answer for that question. But that story allowed me to ask that question. And if anything, I hope that kids ask that question when they're reading it and then try and find their own answers to that. You know, I think that's so true that I think fiction is one of the best vehicles to addressing these really tough questions that we have about being human and about being part of the earth and who we are doing what we're doing. And I don't think there's any other form that really can get at those questions because they have so many answers that that are out there. So what kinds of questions attract you? I mean, what how did is there some kind of psychological aspect to um what you approach in your questions? I find that questions about relationships often, and it's partly my background and partly just because I think that's central to being a human being on this planet. We are relational beings. And in, in The Lost Kingdom, that's very much a book about the moment when a boy realizes his father is flawed. You know, it's that moment when your heroes fall. And what do you do? Like, if that's the person you've looked up to and the person you've modeled yourself on, and suddenly you realize that they are a deeply flawed human being, where does that leave you? You have to come to a new understanding of yourself and a new understanding of the people around you. So I think if I'm concerned with any of those questions in a consistent way, 
it comes back to those human relationships. Yeah, I, I would see that too. In all of your works, I see that very much essence of those human relationships. So, but what about off the page? How do you develop those human relationships with your fans? I know particularly in this day and age, authors are asked to do a lot of fan work and social media and all those other types of things to really integrate with their fan base. So how do you approach that as an author? Oh, man, I experience a lot of guilt about that. I used to reply to every letter and every email I got when when the Clockwork 3 came out and then Icefall. But then as the work started, I'm, I'm now doing a lot of work. Last year, I wrote three novels, and they're all going to be coming out this year, and I don't see that changing in the upcoming year. I've got a, I've got a lot of stories that I want to tell, and if somebody's going to give me the opportunity to tell it, I'm going to take it. Yeah. And so my time has is more constrained, and I have an inbox full of emails that I they break my heart because I, I want to reply, but I don't have the time. But I love hearing from kids. That's... My favorite part, though, is the school visits where I actually go out and I'm meeting the kids and I'm seeing the excitement on their face. So tell us a little story about some of one of the school visits. Give us a give us a humorous incident that happened at maybe a school visit. <laughs> All right. Well, one of my well, there, there's there's several that I could tell. Tell, tell several. <laughs> one of the most memorable school visits I did was where was that? I think it was in Pennsylvania or it may have been Massachusetts. It was on a it was on a month long tour, and I was literally on the road for almost a solid month. And Easy to it all where you yeah were. yeah. But um, we were I was prepping to do my presentation. My laptop's hooked up to the projector. The kids are all there, and all of a sudden, the fire bell rings, and the <laughs> principal comes on and he says, "This is not a drill. We have a gas leak. We need to evacuate the building, and not just evacuate the building, but they had to go all the way across." the field, the soccer field, to like the Church of the Nazarene, which was their evacuation site where their parents were going to come and pick them up. Because this was like, for, this was serious. Like the fire engines were coming. So we all got ushered out. I left my laptop there. I have a flight to catch in like two hours to go to my next stop on the tour. But we're over there in the Church of the Nazarene and the kids are kind of out of control. And I didn't have my presentation. I didn't even have a mic. But I just said, do you want me to still talk to the kids? And they were like, would you? And so I did this sort of impromptu visit, which is mostly, I mean, I've I've found that I can usually catch kids with a story. If you tell a story to kids, they get into it. And so I told a story about the, the kid, Giuseppe. Joseph, the real kid who was the inspiration behind the, my book, The Clockwork Three. It's a very compelling story. And the kids quieted down. So there I am in this church and, you know, this gas leak. And, of course, after the presentation, I had to get a police escort back into the building so I could get my stuff and head to my next tour stop. You know, I had to get to the airport. But that was a pretty memorable Probably one of my favorite school visits. That That is one of the most <laughs> memorable things. I love it. And impressions on the kids, I'm sure. So just briefly tell us about that story that you told the kids about the real inspiration for Clockwork 3. So I read about this story. Um, I was I was just sort of wandering the stacks at Utah State in the library, and I saw a book called The L- Little Slaves of the Harp. And I was like, what's that about? So I pulled it down, and it was about child street musicians, but a system of 
slavery, a system of child slavery that was straight out of Dickens. And I read about this boy Joseph, and but it didn't go into great detail, but it indicated that he had been reported on in the New York Times. So I actually went to the New York Times and went back through their archives to 1863. It's all online, which is amazing. I don't know how people wrote books before the internet. And I read this story about this kid who uh, he had been kidnapped from his home in Italy and he had been brought to New York City. And he was forced to go out onto the streets to, to play a violin to earn money for his master, this ruthless guy named Vincenzo Moto, his padrone. And this was a, it was entirely legal. I mean, Vincenzo Moto had the paperwork to say that he, that he was the guardian of this kid so he could do what he wanted. And there were lots of kids from London and Chicago and Paris and New York that were in this same system of child slavery. And But one night, you know, Joseph, who endured abuse of neglect, he locked in a cellar, you know, in the dark for days on end. He had a scar on his ear where Vincenzo Moto had almost bitten it off. And one night, Joseph decided he was going to escape, which was taking his life into his hands. And he fled to the one place in New York City that reminded him of his home back in Italy, and that was Central Park. And he wandered around Central Park for several days until he was found by a park keeper named Dennis, uh, who took him to a woman named Mrs. McMonagle, who ran a dairy. Like the dairy, the, if you've been to Central Park, there's a building that's called the dairy. And that's where she sort of clothed and took care of him. And eventually, the story got out. A New York Times reporter came down to the park to interview Joseph and and reported this story to the public. And there was such outcry that they actually arrested Vincenzo Moto. And Joseph went with the cops to identify him. And unfortunately, the judge in the case ruled it a mistaken identity situation and Vincenzo Moto was released. However, the fallout from it led to the lawmakers of New York City basically outlawing this system of child slavery. So I was just so inspired. I mean, this kid was 12 years old, and he took the stand in court to testify in a language that wasn't his own. And that bravery was just compelling to me, and I, I knew I had to work that into a novel some way. And you did amazingly well. And a be- oh, beautiful you. novel that, that you. brings that real-life story to kids of today and Real life stories that inspire real life kids. That's a great way to be. Thanks so much for joining us today, Matt. Thank you for having me. That was Rachel and author Matthew J. Kirby on Worlds Awaiting. Now, let's hear what kids are saying about books. Our Taylor Miranda visited recently with some youngsters from Timpanogos Elementary School in Provo, Utah. So what makes reading fun? What makes reading fun is when you really get into a book and then, well, sometimes this happens to me, like I get into a book and then um, I like, I can picture it happening as I'm reading through the book, so I like that. Um, I like reading because um, when you get into a book, you just want to keep on reading and reading and reading. I think that's really fun. Most of the time you just get submerged into the book and just get taken into that world. And for me, everything just cancels out and you could escape to a different world, a different reality. What do you think makes a a book good? Um, What makes a book good to me is um, mostly the characters have to go on adventures and do certain things. so they go all, go all over. So. Having the characters be put through trials and see how they 
overcome them? For me, it's the plot. If the plot actually goes well with like the character's background and story, it's a really, really good book. So do you guys have a certain type of book that's your, your favorite? My favorite type of book is fantasy because it, it's not real, so it makes it cool. Um, I like the books with fantasy, mystery, and that are a little bit scary. Uh, my favorite book type is fiction because in, if it was like based on a true story, you can't say like that would never happen. But if it's fiction, you can anything can happen. Um, I also like fantasy because, um, like before, like when you get pulled into that book and you like come into a different world, it's like into a world you've never been into, and it's super interesting. That was children from Timpanogos Elementary in Provo, Utah, talking about what makes a book good with Taylor Miranda. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.